Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. For much of 10th grade, I had a huge crush on a senior in my creative writing class. Her name was April, and I had known of her for some time, as she was friends with my older sister, and I had known her younger brother in middle school. Besides being beautiful, she was also really cool. She played the bass, wore thrift store clothing, and her favorite beetle was Ringo, which I thought, and still think, is a pretty bold choice. I sat behind her in class and always felt lucky each time she'd turn around and speak to me. Obviously, I knew that I had no chance with someone older and way cooler than myself, but when I was invited by her and Carla, the other cool, attractive senior in that class, to a weekly Bible study held at Carla's house, I wholeheartedly accepted. I'd grown up in the church, so I didn't have any qualms about the purpose of these weekly meetings. But to be clear, the main intent of my consistent attendance was to be around April. As luck would have it, April and I would gradually grow closer over time. I think because I truly believed that I had no chance, I often projected a false sense of confidence around her. In my mind, the stakes were low, therefore, I could be pretty fearless with my flirting. But when I found out through my best friend Chris that April possibly felt the same for me as I did for her, well, any confidence that I might have had quickly turned into self-doubt. I mean, how could someone like her be interested in someone like me? She was about to go off to college, and I was just a little boy that didn't even have his license yet. I was so intimidated by her and the prospect of moving up into the major leagues that I subconsciously went about alienating myself from her and sabotaging any chance I might have had to potentially French kiss a really hot senior. I got quiet and distant, acted weird and immature, and was successful in pushing her away. When she started dating some guy named Ryan, who played guitar in a Christian death metal band called Facades of Benevolence, it really broke my heart. I hated Ryan. Whenever he'd come up in conversation with April, I'd pretend to not remember his name. Eventually, I stopped attending the Bible study at Carla's house and decided that all Christian rock music was dumb. Now, ironically, one particular record that I spent a lot of time with during that period in which I pined for April, was, unbeknownst to me, an album with strong ties to the very scene that I had unfairly dismissed due to my broken heart. That album was North to the Future by George's own Joe Christmas. I first came to Joe Christmas through my dear friend Jeremy Spake, whose excellent taste in music had a profound influence on my listening habits as a teenager. When Joe Christmas was first introduced to me, there was no mention of them being a quote-unquote Christian band. Though I grew up in a Christian household, I was never prohibited from enjoying secular entertainment and had not really ever paid any attention to Christian music. So Joe Christmas being on Tooth & Nail Records didn't really mean anything to me, as I didn't know what Tooth & Nail was. I probably just assumed it was just some small indie label. All I knew was that after hearing their song Couplesgate was that Joe Christmas was definitely a band for me. 
It felt youthful and suburban. Aspects that I, as a teenager in suburbia, could definitely relate to. So I filed the band away in my mind as something I should seek out. In time, I found a copy of their 1996 sophomore record, North to the Future, and I believe Criminal Records in Atlanta. And though it did not have the song I was familiar with on it, I still believed it would be a worthwhile purchase. So I bought that album. And when I got home, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hi, my name is Russell, and I played guitar and bass on the second Joe Christmas album, North to the Future, and I was one of the primary songwriters along with Zachary Gresham. Gresham, and I sing and play guitar, and I think on the record I also played, you know, keyboard parts. I do the electric piano and organ stuff, wrote the songs with the guitarist, Russell, and we, we all kind of contributed, but like me and him were the main songwriters who would bring stuff in to flesh out. Vocalist and guitarist Zachary Gresham would grow up near Atlanta in the suburbs of Cobb County, Georgia, and it is at an early age that he would first gain an interest in music. I grew up in Austell, which is right next to Mableton. Like, my high school was in Mableton, but it's like two little small towns in southwest Cobb County that, you know, you could be, like, driving on one street and be in Austell for one minute and then turn left and be in Mableton and then turn right and be back in Austell. So, but technically, I was, you know, grew up in Austell. Yeah, it, it was weird. Weird in a cool way. It was like... It had the vibe of a small town, but we were like less than 10 minutes from Six Flags and like 20 minutes from like Little Five Points. So you felt like you were in the suburb, but it felt different than like Roswell or East Cobb. It was not as affluent, more like you know, middle class and you know, lower class. It was kind of cool. I felt like you could ride your bike as a kid, you know around and so then as we got older in high school you know we could drive the little top points after school and you know go to criminal records and waxing facts and you know jumpman's daughter and stuff like that and and there was shows you know i thought it was a cool place to grow up but not so cool that i wanted to stay there uh, <laughs> i guess like my first musical memory is being out at my grandmother's house with my cousin we would go in the for a few weeks at a time in the like you know summers and she would make us sing you know <laughs> but I think my first memories of like getting lost in music was just like sitting at the piano and just kind of messing around with it like I had taken lessons when I was a kid probably a little too young and I just remember like killing hours it seems like just sitting at the piano like creating 
stories with the sounds of the notes, kind of getting lost in improvising on the piano and through that in choir and stuff in church and just singing songs in church, I think got me comfortable with singing and expressing myself. And then when I was in high school, my dad got me an acoustic guitar for Christmas one year and learned some chords and kind of just taught myself how to play. Eventually, Gresham would meet Russell Holbrook, and in time, the two, along with friend Ryan Weaver, would begin playing music together. I was born in Austell at the, you know, Cobb Wellstar Hospital. Then lived in Marietta until I was like 10, I think, then moved to Mableton. Met Zach in ninth grade, and like, when we were kids, Zach and I, we were all church kids. We like bonded over like the Christian rock bands and the Christian punk and metal bands that we loved, and then he introduced me to Ryan. I'd met him probably in like second or third grade. He went to the same church that I did. He ended up going to the, our same high school too. None of us were drinking or doing drugs or anything at that point. And we used to just like pal around and we would ride around and do stupid things like throw bouncy balls at people out the window of the car and We'd like go to Dairy Queen and then we do church stuff. And Zach's cousin Shane introduced me to like all this underground Christian music, which led oddly to listening to like Sonic Youth and Mud Honey and stuff. I was already playing in this metal band called the Psycho Geeks, and it was kind of like a thrash, like hardcore crossover, sort of like a more melodic DRI and the singer did like the death metal vocals and it was a lot of fun but i didn't know how to play anything but power chords and then zachary got a guitar and he taught me how to to play open chords like g c and d and the simple stuff all i could do was go so we would play music together and that started pretty early on we started jamming we were horrible i mean we were you know your average garage band, but then, I don't know, something started to click. We um, started, you know, kind of writing some decent songs. Gresham, Holbrook, and Weaver, along with original drummer Jason Lee, who would later be replaced by drummer Jason Dempsey, would begin playing shows around the Atlanta area. Originally going by the name The Subliminal Neckties and then Crayon, the band would eventually settle on the name Joe Christmas. Our first show was at a church, and um, then we played churches as crayon, and we played all ages places. And we would play at friends' houses and uh, basement shows and just wherever. 11th grade, we started playing at this club called the Somber Reptile. I loved that place. So we played there quite a bit. It was awesome. That was a totally like magical, formative time. We thought that there was like another band called like, you know, Crayon that we found some like, you know, seven inches for. And we were like, oh, well, we got to change our name. And I think before Joe Christmas, we went to Subliminal Neckties for a little while. That may have been before Crayon. So when we went to Joe Christmas, I think my girlfriend at the time suggested it because we were reading Light in August uh, in our, you know, English class in Joe Christmas was like the main character, and we were like, okay, yeah, that, that doesn't sound 
as awful as subliminal neckties or Mama Hen and the Chicken Nuggets or some stupid name, you know. With the members of the band having grown up in the church, a number of the shows in which they would participate would be within the local Christian rock scene. Because of their association with the scene, the band would oftentimes be identified as a Christian act, a label the members did not consider themselves to be and could sometimes cause conflict when they did not meet the expectations of that particular scene. We weren't a Christian band by any means. My cousin, like, I went to the Cornerstone Festival with him, like, in eighth and ninth grade. And, I mean, I was familiar with, like, you know, some of the Christian rock bands, but I also was, like, you know, getting into other stuff that wasn't that. And, like, even then I I knew that most Christian rock was, like, corny and, and cheesy. And, I mean, for the most part, it wasn't a problem. I mean, but... Sometimes, like, we we would show up and we end up being playing a show at this, like, church or something or always this club that was obvious, like, okay, uh, we're going to get in trouble here because uh, we smell like pot, which we usually didn't, but it was just, I don't know, it's like you have to feel right in your own skin and something was just not right about it. We just started playing where we were, you know, and... um I don't know. I mean, we didn't worry about it. We weren't like, oh, people are going to think this or that about us. We were just like, hey, they're having shows here. We're a band, and they asked us to play, and so we're going to do it. And we never uh, did consider ourselves to be a Christian band, which, you know, we got criticism for that. I remember we played the show at Georgia Tech. I wore a four-length skirt. And Zach wore this leisure suit, and by the end of the show, he had taken off his shirt, and, like, his pants were unbuttoned, and he was, like, rolling across the stage and stuff. The guys that organized that were upset, and they were like, this is supposed to be a Christian show, and we were like, well, we're just having fun, you know, and we met Chris Colbert from a band that was in the same Christian scene, and they were called breakfast with Amy and they were like my personal precursor to Sonic Youth and to like noisy bands because they had that aesthetic and they would do like guitar solos that were out of key and they would just have tons of feedback and it was on like the Christian label so people thought they were Christian band and Chris Colbert was like no we're just an entertainment band and then he didn't seemed to like get upset about the association because you know he was a spiritual guy he didn't go out proselytizing or anything but he had his own beliefs and he just like wanted to make music he was kind of saying this is where i am in life so i'm just going to do it and then we kind of had like the same outlook then later on we got more and more into playing i guess what what's generally referred to as like general market shows or the secular scene or whatever. I think there was a conflict later on, but certainly not initially. Oh, I have to tell one more story. And uh, (laughs) I think when we were seniors, we got a song on a Christian compilation. It was for Mootown Records, which was kind of the local Christian label. And so it was just us playing this repetitive riff with all this noise and then a, a 
We had clips from it, like this televangelist laid over it, like sampled. It's almost like a 90s industrial sort of thing. It's more just like noise rock. This guy from another Christian metal band got so upset about it that he said, you know, we shouldn't be criticizing anyone who's like spreading the gospel. And this guy cornered Zach at one of the festivals we played at. He had Zach cornered for like an hour or two just like reading verses to him out of the bible and like arguing and it was so weird you know i mean i was like why is this happening and then we played at interseeds 94 right after we graduated and this guy jumped on stage and said that god told him to tell us to get off the stage and (laughs) and then like there was shouting and the audience divided we just kept playing, and like it was the weirdest thing. It was strange. If you're a Christian band, you're trying to convert people, right? I think. And so we were just kids, like writing our songs and playing music, and that's where we grew up. So we just kind of went with it. And then it did eventually lead to some division, but I don't know. Shit happens when we grow up, you know? In 1994, the band would record their Oatmeal EP with Chris Colbert engineering and producing. Following its completion, the members of the band would disperse to separate colleges, with the status of Joe Christmas uncertain. Later that year, the Nashville-based independent label Flying Tart Records would express an interest in releasing a full length by the band. So at the beginning of 95, the band, along with new drummer Philip Brown, would travel to Nashville to record their debut album, Upstairs Overlooking, with Chris Colbert and producer Steve Hendelong. I can't exactly remember, but I think at the end of senior year, Zach and I were determined to do another recording because we'd been like going down to a little 8-track studio in Tucker. We went there several times during high school and just made demos in this this dude had a, a studio in his basement and he had a, it wasn't a Tascam, it was like a Tascam knockoff of, and it was the eight track reel to reel analog. And we recorded there. And then at the end of high school, we we're like, yeah, we're going to make a record. And so Chris Colbert went with us to <laughs> the studio that was in the basement of these twin brothers They had a band, and I cannot remember the name. They were kind of big in the Christian scene, and we used to call them the Chet Brothers. It's like they both look like a Chet. And then (laughs) so we went to record with Chet Brothers, and Chris was there, and we did six songs, and that was the Oatmeal EP. And then we went to college, and we were like, "Uh, you know, see you. We'll get together again sometime it was kind of like, well, what do we do now? I guess that was that, you know. What I can remember is we got the offer for the record deal, right? We discussed it, and 
decided to take it against the advice of, of like my dad because it wasn't reviewed by a lawyer or anything. I'm pretty sure we accepted the record deal and then I was in a dorm one day and someone was like just killing it on the drums at the end of the hallway. Somebody said, oh yeah, that's Philip Brown. And I was like, oh, well, I'm friends with Philip. I never knew he played drums and I went down there and he was just like killing it. So I went home and uh, we were supposed to have band practice that weekend. Our drummer ghosted us. He knew that we were supposed to practice because we had this like record deal offer and Zach and I were like, oh crap. So we got ghosted and then I just remembered Philip and I told Zachary and then the next day I called Philip and left a message on his machine saying, hey, you want to go to Nashville and make a record? And then he called back and said he did, and that was that. We started practicing, and I think we got to practice for maybe three weeks or a month. It may have been longer, but it was not that long. So there's Christmas break, and then we started recording right at the beginning of February 95, I believe. I remember the first day, like, Alex Parker, the guy who signed us, he was so nervous because, like, we couldn't get like anything on tape that was like worth saving. <laughs> and he was, he was like really worried, but then, you know, by the time we got into the second day, we were kind of in a groove and, and it got easier. Originally intended for release on Fly and Tart, Upstairs Overlooking would be brought to the attention of Tooth and Nail Records, a Seattle-based independent label with strong ties to the underground Christian rock scene. Well, this is third-hand knowledge, I guess. Zach told me that Alex told him he played the album for Brandon, and he was like, hey, look what I have that you don't, ha-ha. <laughs> because at the time, like, Brandon on Tooth & Nail, like, he had, like, all the coolest indie bands, you know, in that scene. I don't know if Alex was just, like, poking at him at the time, but Brandon was like, well, I'll buy that from you. Uh, I remember I was living in the dorms and they called and Flying Tart sold it to Tooth and Nail. And like, we didn't really have a choice because we were stupid or, you know, young and didn't understand the music business or contracts or anything. And we just wanted a shrink wrap CD basically, you know, and when the guy from Tooth and Nail called me, it's like, he kind of made it sound like we're trying to branch out and have secular, you know, bands. Brandon has even stated recently in interviews that his intent was never to like create like a Christian label per se. I feel like he was the same way we were. It's just like, here's where you are in life. And this is where we came up. And like, there's some great bands around that aren't getting any love or attention. He knew bands personally that like really kicked ass, but they were from kind of a different scenes. So like Brandon was like, man, these bands are great. Nobody's uh, giving them a chance. And then he also signed other bands that didn't have like any sort of Christian background. As stated in the liner notes in the interest of capitalism and corporate totalitarianism, Tooth & Nail Records would release Upstairs Overlooking in the summer of 1995.
like we didn't tour that much on the first record because we were you know still in college so like we would you know do some shows in the summer in Athens though it, it like was received very well I remember doing shows in Atlanta and you know playing on you know 88.5 you know a couple skate song was like always on the radio it seemed like one of my like favorite memories is Couple Skate was the number one most requested song on album 88 for like two weeks because they used to have a request show on Fridays. I was with my family, my parents and my sister, and we were leaving a restaurant and like I got my dad to put it on album 88 for the request show and the guy was like, here's the number one song, number one request for the past two weeks, Couple Skate. I was there in the car alone, like with my family, and I was like, this is amazing. Like, I, w I was so excited. I c and I was like, oh my gosh. And my parents were like, that's good, son. They weren't impressed at all. <laughs> my sister didn't care. <laughs> it is during band practices and at shows that the band would begin to work out the material that would make up their sophomore record. It seems like we were always working on some new songs and just playing the old songs live and then trying out new stuff and then lots of jams. We would get together on the weekends or they would come up. You know, I had a four track, so I would record stuff. Like Russell had a four track and, you know, so like we could both like, you know, demo up songs and, you know, share them and get together and learn them. I mean, some of the songs kind of came out of just us, you know, jamming together. Like the first song, the Scrabble Girl, was was just something that kind of happened in the practice room. And we would just kind of jam on to get warmed up. We kind of re remembered it and kept doing it. And then it was like, all right, this is kind of a cool way to get loose and it's fun to play. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that we we were pretty prepared by the time we went in there. Like, because I think some of the songs were probably already seeds of songs a year before that. It is while preparing and planning for the new material to be recorded that the band would explore the possibility of making the album in Chicago at Steve Albini's studio, Electrical Audio. We were just listening to like lots of records that were recorded up in Chicago at Electrical Audio, and one of my favorite bands at the time was the Archers of Loaf, and they had an EP out called Archers of Loaf versus the Greatest of All Time. And that was recorded by Bob West, and I loved that album. We didn't really think it was possible that we'd be able to go there. We thought they had, like, the best drum sounds and guitar sounds and everything, and we were just, like, almost on a goof. We were like, oh, we want to go record with Steve Albini. I mean, we were serious about it, but I know that from my part, I didn't really think it was a serious possibility, you know? He had a really fair rate for, like, indie bands, you know? Um, 
I had gotten his number, I think from like Henry Owings and just kind of like, you know, called him and, you know, booked him. And I think at the time it's like, for what it was, I mean, it was nowhere near back then. Nice dudes like that could be thousand dollars a day or something, you know? And I feel like it was less than that. It was like, you know, maybe $300 a day or $500 a day, which is a lot, would have been a lot for us to pay ourselves. And I think that for Tooth and Nail, it's like, it was probably worth it to them to have a band that they could say was recorded by Steve Albini. And he was going to record it, but then I think he had that offer to record that Page and Plant album that he did in 96. and we didn't want to change the date, so we went with Bob Weston. You know, it turned out Steve Albini was booked, and but Bob was available. And we were like, Bob Weston, really? I didn't even know that he was an engineer there all the time. We were like, yes, please. And that's how we ended up working with Bob Weston. And I'm so grateful. I mean, we got to meet Steve Albini there before he left. To, I think he you know, left to go to England. And he was, like, really nice. He had this huge calculator watch. He was a really nice guy. It was a wonderful experience. Sessions for the record would take place at Electrical Audio in the spring of 1996, which at the time was located inside the home of Steve Albini. We were there for, I think, 10 or 12 days. They had a deal worked out with, like, a hotel in Chicago that was, like, a pretty nice hotel. The label wouldn't have put us up, but I think, you know, Bob kind of tacked that onto the recording fee. So we stayed there for a few days, but then it's like, I guess he had to get more money from the label because that's when we had to go stay in, like, the bad part of town when there was, like, a shooting in the room next to us or some crazy shit. You know, we were nervous, of course, but it was also a great learning experience and brought Chris, you know, there just to kind of help out, you know, if we needed like somebody who, I don't know, could like translate technically. And also just, I think that he was curious to see it too. I mean, cause, cause it was like Steve Albini's home studio and everybody was curious, like what it was going to be like. And it, it was really magical. I mean, this was the one that was like at his house it was just like in a neighborhood near Lincoln Park, I think. I remember it was near a flavor factory. Like, you would go out in some mornings, it would smell like butterscotch in the air or like grape, you know. In the basement was the live room. It was like two rooms. One was kind of like the drum room and was like this old library card catalog type shelf system full of microphones. I mean, it was like an engineer's part-on dream. And then from the main floor, which I'd forgotten about this until you know, Russell said, but like you pushed some little button on a bookshelf and things slid to reveal a staircase that went up to the attic that was the control room on one side of the like, you know, finished attic. And then on the other side was his guy that would like, you know, fix his gear and stuff. I remember when we got there, I had this old Telecaster that um, was like shortened out and he like resoldered the wires for me and stuff and got it all sounding good. And it was really cool. I mean, everybody was always like, that drum sound, how does he get that drum sound? And we were curious to see what he was going to do to get that drum sound. It was like the simplest thing. Bob Weston bought all new heads for all the drums. 
and tune the drums. I don't think we'd ever seen anybody tune drums before. And it was like so much of the sound was just having a drum kit with like new heads on it that were tuned. <laughs> it's like, how simple is that? You know, it was just like so much fun. We'd get there at eight or nine in the morning, 10 and stay till, you know, dinner. It wasn't like other places I've been or where it's like can be there all day and all night or party and you know it was very utilitarian get our work done and then go out to eat and hang out for, go see a show that night or you know we're finding some lyrics which I wish I'd spent a little bit more time doing we pretty much did it live and then went back with like a scratch vocal went back and redid the vocals and then like a couple of you know overdub if we wanted to add a electric piano or you know, background vocal, but we had the songs like, you know, worked out for the most part. I mean, like there was some happy accidents. If I remember correctly, I mean, most of the stuff was not more than a few takes. I mean, part of the Bob Weston philosophy was like, we're not producing your record. We're just capturing the way you guys sound, you know, so work it out before you get here. And in the end, they made a record. North to the Future opens with Scrabble Girl, a track that begins as a slowly churned mixture of interweaved guitars and fuzz bass. As it gradually builds, the guitars get a bit louder and dirtier, creating a seamless transition into a transcendent exercise of indie rock guitar heroics.
when we wrote it, it became our song that we would start a show with because the way it, it kind of builds, it's kind of slow and, you know, it has a little bit of singing at, at the beginning and then it kind of builds to instrumental. Yeah, so it just kind of was the obvious opener. So this was, you know, post Upstairs Overlooking. We were practicing at Phillip's parents' house in Marietta off the Delk Road and, you know, and... Uh, I think we had taken a smoke break, you know, and had a cigarette, and then I was really stoned, and I was playing Ryan's bass, and I played the bass line. It was one of those things where you just play it, and there it is, just comes out, and I just kept playing it over and over and over. And then Zachary picked up his guitar, and he just played the melody like... And <laughs> my humming sounds awful, but... Yeah, it was just one of those things where it just, like, comes out. It seems to, like, come out of the ether or something. As far as I remember, we were just jamming on it. Again, it just kind of materialized and sort of, like, wrote itself. And then we just played it over and over and over and over. I think we played it for, like, the rest of the day. That was, like, the only thing we played. And then we were like, yay, we have a new song. On Scrabble Girl... The guitar solo that Zachary plays, you know, his entire overdub, he used the same guitar that Kurt Cobain used to do overdubs with on In Utero. I always thought that was awesome. I would say at that time, like, you know, Pavement was probably my favorite band, as well as Yoa Tango. Towards the end of that song, I feel like I'm trying to channel some Ira Kaplan. chunks i think the lyrics are like uh personal for zachary they're from like a personal experience he had with a, a female friend and i don't think it was romantic i think that song is about you know being young and hanging out and just you're playing a board game with a good friend and hanging out and talking and suddenly it's daylight and it's just innocent and beautiful you know that's what it is to me. With its driving rhythm, burst of noisy guitars, and anthemic chorus, the skillfully crafted pop of I'll Bet You Do is a song destined to be the second track on an album. Especially in considering the stage setting of track one, there really is no other option for this particular record.
you don't want to put your best song first, you know, and because then it's all downhill from there. But it seems like I remember with the first record, the first song is like sort of an instrumental, a similar thing, like a like a little vocal thing with a little short instrumental and then couple skate. I don't think it's the best song on the record, but it's definitely was the, the most poppy and the most popular song. So I guess, you know, you could say it was the best song or whatever. But yeah, had that since that it was the one that was similar to couple skate. We had two different tunings that we would use. Uh, we had this drop D tuning, couple skate is in that tuning and I'll bet you do is in that tuning. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is once again being at Philip's parents' house. I was with Philip and my friend Chris Denning was there. We had recorded some like really silly like hardcore thing. <laughs> and recorded it on the four track and Chris was just screaming. We smoked a lot of weed and I started playing, you know, the opening riff for I'll Bet You Do. It was like, again, when we're just fiddling on our instruments and I played it, you know, because we were playing in drop D and I just played it over and over and over and over. And then it got late and it was time to go. And right before we left Phillips driveway, Chris and I sat there. <laughs> this is so silly. We smoked another bowl. Like we were about to smoke, and Chris said, I'd like some of that. And I said, yeah, I bet you do. And I was like, oh, that's the song title. And then so it was the song then. And then we left. I think we were going down Delk Road and crossing Johnson's Ferry, and I was messing with the radio. And all of a sudden, Chris screamed, look out. And I looked up, and we were heading straight towards that gigantic metal light pole that's right there at the corner of the intersection. And I swerved, and I hit the curb and busted the tire. And it was terrifying. And we pulled into the Waffle House parking lot right there and changed the tire and then went back to Mableton. And that was the night that I'll Bet You Do was born. (laughs) But, you know, Philip and I had jammed on it that night. When we got together as a band and Ryan made suggestions and Zachary, and then um, it all came together, you know, and I loved, like, the vocals that Zach came up with for the whole song, but especially the chorus and the way he did the notes and, like, the lilting sound, and it's just really great. I do remember on the course, like the general just was just like to not be so analytical to, you know, kind of let's let things go and go with the, the moment and stuff. I don't know. It's it's not really about anything that I can remember. I know sometimes the words are really important, but sometimes it's more like just the words are another instrument that you don't want to get in the way of like overall. Following I'll Bet You Do is the melodic mid-tempo number, Dreaming for the Gold.
that one was a little bit later. We were getting closer to going up to Chicago, and Zachary like masterminded the whole song. He wrote like the whole song, and then I came up with the lead guitar part. He had all the chords and everything, so I was able to write these parts that were just single notes, and those are played during the verses. And I was so excited because I loved doing that. It's not very prominent, but I really enjoyed being able to come up with that to complement like the vocal line and the chords that Zachary had come up with. I remember he showed it to us at band practice up in Athens one day. Yeah, we just like each of us came up with our own part for it. We just played it together, and it was one that came together really easily. It definitely was a personal song. Like the time that a lot of these were written, it's like I was going through a breakup with my high school sweetheart. We came to school together and kind of like drifted apart. So I think it probably started with me like working out some feelings on the guitar and just trying to put some emotions into you know words. I do remember the like second verse? Like I had a friend who was in like a somewhat abusive relationship or like a very up and down relationship, like codependent with like this really mean guy. And she would complain about him, but she was dependent on him for get around stuff. But she actually had a car at her parents' house that she could use. I guess she, she was just in a codependent relationship. And I think that I sort of mind a little bit of her experience. Some of my first songs, like in ninth and tenth grade, you know, were pretty cheesy. And it's like, I think I was afraid to, like, be too specific. I know I, I would sometimes take something and then, like, change the pronouns around. So I, I was not saying me and I, but I meant me or I, but just to kind of give it more of a story feel than, like, a biographical, confessional feel. That was one of my favorite songs on the album. Like I remember when that chord progression came, it was a new progression for me, a little more complicated than the usual, and a couple of little chord step-ups and turns on the chorus that allowed me to sing a, a different kind of melody than I usually would that was really fun to like sing and, and write. track Haunted Mystery. The open spaces created between the track's core musical backing allow subtle touches of electric piano, amp buzz, and the faint murmur of a distorted guitar to permeate throughout, establishing the ideal atmosphere to complement 
of Gresham's voice and lyrics. Haunted Mystery is another Zachary song. I really love that one too. Really love how it turned out. It was uh, not completed when we went up there. I know Zachary had all the riffs for it and all the parts. He even like laid out the structure and we just like went through it. It had never been played before at all. I don't think, or maybe briefly. What I remember was it wasn't like, this song is totally finished, here's how it goes. It wasn't like that. So we like played through it and did parts. It definitely, you know, came together in the studio and it has a very like dingy kind of feel. I remember like he had the lyrics and everything and he was like really excited about it. And I remember when we were listening to the playback, I think it was that one, either that one or like East Coast Angle, but we were like, whoa, like this is, this is cool. I don't know, we went to like make a record and didn't really have expectations as far as, yeah, I mean, we're going to do this and do our best, but something was happening at that moment listening to that we knew that like it was different like some stuff was coming out that we hadn't expected so it's very exciting when i hear it i think of a haunted mystery was kind of like just referring to maybe like my struggle with faith what happens after you die nobody knows and so much of religion is based on that you know mystery and i think that was kind of the impetus for the song i saw a lot of people around me too worried about the things that they can't see i think in my 20 year old mind that was a way to try to do it in a way that was saying something without saying something <laughs>
the subdued and melancholic best wishes. Excuse the typical verse-chorus-verse-chorus-bridge-chorus formula found in much of pop music, and opts for a more economical arrangement that allows the separate parts within the song to have much more of an impact. When, when we wrote it and it was really fun to play and it's a good song for the middle of a record it's not trying to be a couple skate or a big song so that was another song where we went to practice and Zach was like hey I have a song and he played through the whole theme at one time and sang it and everything so we were like cool so then we just find out what to add to it I know that we wanted to have kind of different arrangements and I know this might sound weird but Ryan and I were like obsessed with typo negative when we made north to the future and typo negative had like a lot of odd arrangements and they would have songs that were 12 minutes long that had like movements almost turn like what should have been a chorus or what functioned as a chorus into like a mini movement of like a mini symphony, you know, it was weird. We wanted to like do things with the arrangements. The song has a distinct Mableton element too. Yeah, this one gets deep into some personal stuff. It's, it's probably the most like straightforward of a song it's kind of like a farewell song to uh, someone after the immediate pain is gone or maybe not quite the immediate pain but i like the lyrics of the song and i always like i guess it's the second part of the second verse about the you know dissing my clothes my you know longtime girlfriend in high school as you go to college and start branching off and you know getting in your own skin it's like i was always a little you know different like remember once running into her at like a you know party and like i was wearing sweatpants or something or like pajama bottoms and she was like making fun of me for like why are you wearing pajama pants to a party and i was like because i don't care and i remember that when we were recording that one like the label kept wanting to like hear stuff you know and we were like no just wait till it's over but we did send them that song just to kind of like mess with them a little bit or not mess with them, but just we knew that, that it would kind of throw them off a little bit. But they loved it. We were expecting that they would be like, what the hell? But they were like, that sounds great. Can't wait.
Pretty Girl Never Lights Her Own Cigarette demonstrates the band's aptitude for songcraft through its lyrical details and nuanced use of dynamics, following through on the promise that is implied when having such a great title. Yeah, I wish I could remember who exactly said it. I think it was maybe someone that Russell was like, you know, dating. But yeah, somebody said it and I pulled out the notebook and it was like, you know, that's going in there. That's going to be a something, you know. Our friend Cynthia Radford said that when we were drinking one night. I think it was like actually outside the 40 Watt Club. She was like one of our good friends from high school. She and I like almost dated. She used to have this tiny truck and like help us carry around our equipment and stuff when we were playing high school shows. And yeah, so she's the one that said that, you know, the opening riff, which Ryan plays on the bass, that was originally written on the guitar. And I remember one day being down in Ryan's room because he lived over in Austell. You know, he and I lived about 15 minutes from one another. And then Zachary lived in Athens. Philip had moved to Athens by this point, I believe. Had this guitar riff and then, you know, just kept playing it. And I would just start with one riff and then add things to it as they came out. I think that I came up with all the music just for the rhythm stuff, you know. And then Zachary, I remember when he like came up with the chorus of like, don't act surprised and I can see right through your eyes and all that. I loved that. it at the time but I think I probably subconsciously that stepping out was when I was like 10 years old I went to summer camp in upstate New York with my cousin and like a Sunday school teacher and we listened to ELO the whole way there pretty much I always loved ELO but like I don't know if I lifted the I'm stepping out but there's that that ELO song I'm stepping out I'm stepping out we didn't mind ripping stuff off or stealing stuff. The nostalgic tea green and fady mist is a laid back number on which Gresham's tender vocals waft across a skeletal procession anchored by a melodic bass line.
that was one that like Russell wrote on bass guitar. I think that one is just bass guitar and drums and it's guitar. Maybe a little bit of electric guitar doing the rhythm, but the like main driving thing is you know bass, but it's played high up on the neck. And I remember it's named after colors from the Benjamin Moore color chart. T Green was a color and Fady Mist was a color. I remember the title, like I thought it was so random and just like nonsensical. And Zach said, you know, he told me about the paint colors, but he and Philip were like, had they got stoned and they were on the roof of their house. And he said, Philip just said it. He was like, T Green and Fady Mist. And they both started cracking up laughing. And so that's how it became the song title. <laughs> I think Russell came up with with the first set of lyrics and I think it was allegorical to uh we were starting to uh experiment with you know um things that that you could say were green and misty so that's just like a love song between two friends who are you know sitting together partaking kind of a little meditation on or like a appreciation of the, like we understood that we were really lucky in those moments that we were getting to do what we were doing in kind of a heady romance of that we never made any money off of this album so i don't think we're going to get a suit or anything but like the next verses i think straight up is a line from a black sabbath song first So we had some lyrics that I had written, but don't tell Ozzy, but the second half of the song, the verse, is all from the very first Black Sabbath record, which is from a cover song. So it's not actually Sabbath, but Sabbath covered it, and then we took it from them. <laughs> it was so out of context. We didn't even tell the label because then they would have probably had to get permission, and then it wasn't worth all that.
avoiding the restraint of the previous song and embracing a more joyous frenetic energy, The Hard Charging Baby Shoes is a spirited track that benefits greatly from both its specific placement on the album and the sonic guidance of Bob Weston. That song is actually a song that was from before our first record. We put out a cassette tape, a little EP, before we got signed to Flying Tart and stuff. It had a recording of you know, Baby Shoes on it. It was kind of one of just those like pop punk kind of songs that we didn't think was really good enough or it just we didn't put on the first record for whatever reason. And But we had come back to it for this because it is a surprisingly slow and sparse album you know it kind of needed a like a jolt originally i was worried that it would be like too much of a shock but it's cool that's like that jolt it's like hey almost like zach is screaming hey i remember bob ran the vocals through like the space echo which like for everything else i don't even think there's reverb on the vocals unless it's just the room sound but everything's really just dry and no effects but he had the idea to put the like echo on the voice, which at first it seemed so weird, but I'm so glad he did it. It makes it stand out. That was one that I like composed alone, like in my bedroom. It was something that I had these ideas and then it took forever for it to come together. But I just, I really liked it. You know, you know, I just like shared it with the guys and we put it together, did the arrangements and everything. On the Oatmeal EP, there used to be a part where the drums would do double time, and we took that out, and then uh, we added the little breakdown part, which I was really excited about because uh, I really dug doing the slow stuff, but I also wanted to do some songs that were like really aggressive or that were heavy, and my dream was to have like really heavy music with like really like dreamy vocals over it and we never quite got there but almost some parts As we near the end of the record, we get the quiet reserve of East Coast Angles that once again finds the band utilizing a sparse arrangement to great effect, making the subtle additions within the track all the more striking. I mean, just listen to this part right here. (laughs) 
isn't that good. For a minute, when I was listening to it, I was like, do we have a batter phone in there? But then I listened to it again, and I was like, oh, no, that, that's that's just the roads with, like, the, you know, vibrato turned up and hitting sparse low-end notes. Yeah, that song was, was like, really fun to do, too. I, me and Russell wrote that one together. I really, like, dug that one, too, and that's uh, Zachary's song title, and I had the the riff, the da 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 I had that. Well, that's like the main riff, and that's pretty much like the whole song, I guess. We had never played that before, and it wasn't finished until we got there. We just kind of put it together. You know, like Chris would help with suggestions, and uh, Bob Weston was really, really wonderful during the whole process, and he was involved. I'm not exactly sure what the song's about, it's about the band. I do know that we gotta find the roadmaps before we arrive. We crank up our amps nearly every night. We gotta try our best on the buses. But anyway, it's about being on the road or like you know, kind of getting ready to to go on the road and you know, trying to um, just you know get along with each other and stuff, and <laughs> not fight. Especially when you got like four or five people in a van. Whoever's driving gets to pick the music. For the most part, we all liked the same stuff. But there was, you know, times that I wanted to drive because I didn't want Ryan and Russell to drive. For a while, they were really into, like, some horrible typo-negative, like, stuff in, like, hair metal. And it just was kind of fun for a while. So that's just kind of like a road song, I guess. We did two takes of East Coast Angle with the noise thing at the end. And I remember Bob Weston chopping the tape like by hand with a razor blade and taking the the end off the second take and putting it on the first take you know it flowed so seamlessly and i was like how is this possible it's incredible <laughs> and so and even you know thinking back on it now or everything is on a computer and you have these chunks and you just drop and drag you know but he did this by hand, you know. He literally, like, edited it by hand. It was amazing.
The album's penultimate track, I Ruined It, is in a way the grand finale of North to the Future. Consisting of a foundation made up of guitars, bass, drums, and organ, ethereal vocals acting more as an instrumental texture than a conduit for lyrical ideas blankets the space and creates a dreamlike atmosphere that eventually coalesces into a cathartic release of shimmering guitar heaviness. turned out it has the heavy dreamy feel i remember before we recorded it i was really adamant about this about trying to explain like the dreamy heavy you know and (laughs) but again the origins are in marietta because we were at philip's parents house before he moved to athens everyone else had gone downstairs for a break and I was just playing guitar and the main riff just came out and I played it and then I played it over and over and over and over (laughs) and then like they came back upstairs I was still playing it and I was like really excited but they didn't seem as excited as I was so I was like oh whatever and then you know later on I guess I convinced everyone to make it into a song or something or maybe they were like they liked it after all, but somehow we ended up making it a song. I remember Bob, when we were like, you know, playing it, he was like, I got to go call Corey or somebody who worked at Touch and Go or Drag City. Like he had a friend. I think it was the guy from this band called the Dirty Three that had this red old Gibson hollow body electric guitar. I don't know if it was like a E35 or uh, I'm not good with the names, but it was like one of those big, thick, hollow body guitars that he was like you know has a special sound so he went and got that and we used it on that song there's a fullness you know to it i mean probably it would have still sounded good with our guitars but the overtones that it created especially with like the distortion and stuff made it sound like it was like a my bloody valentine like 20 guitars going on but it's really just like like <laughs> two <laughs> and we had our friend come and sing the female vocals Sydney Rents from the band Morellis Forest. She did the uh, accompanying like female vocals and she and Zach, you know, did the vocals together because I think Morellis Forest had come to town to do something. And I was really, really excited to have her on the record and just to have that extra element and just to go a little further with the sound, you know, The one thing is I wanted to have trumpet on the chorus, and we didn't do that for some reason. It's a beautiful piece of music, I think, and it is kind of like the ending, and then it's like the reprise is kind of like what's playing as the credits are rolling when people are getting their keys and putting their jackets on. The album ends with the brief instrumental reprise, on which the band plays a modified version of Scrabble Girl, of a Farfisa organ acting as its lead. 
I think we were just like messing around like when we were getting sounds like when we were getting levels and stuff like once you've practiced a song you know you, you don't want to like do that when you're not recording yet you know especially in those days where it was taped and you, you couldn't just do like infinite takes and comp them together so we kind of would just mess around and ended up just kind of was like oh this melody sounds cool on this plays like this i don't remember why we decided to you know to record it for the record but uh i just remember chris helping us transpose it because you know when you zach playing the riff on the farfisa it was in a different key and so chris transposed it and showed us the chords and then we played it and chris Colbert is uh, playing that the Stratocaster. I think it was the Strat with the clear tone, that really warm, clear tone. That's Chris Colbert. And then I'm playing, you know, just the rhythm and Ryan is playing bass and um, Zach's playing the Farfisa. But yeah, it was just something that we busted out quickly. I mean, I have a very like little memory of it really just being down in the room together standing next to chris and watching him play the chords and just being there you know and feeling like damn why can't this last forever because i think it was one of the last things we did with the sessions for the record complete gresham would focus on the album art working on the design with rem's artistic director chris bilheimer from what i remember Zachary took that picture while we were uh, traveling and then Chris Bilheimer, you know, added the North to the future on the highway sign. And then the Joe Christmas lettering, that's Zachary's handwriting. I remember them putting it all together. Zachary was very hands-on in the process and I was removed from it. I was just like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I do remember as it progressed seeing it in the different stages and just feeling really excited about it. Chris was the man back then. I mean, it was so lucky to be friends with him and living in in Athens. And he was doing art for REM and tons of other, you know, album covers and stuff. And was really nice with, with his time and, and talents sort of have the idea and had made a collage, but it was kind of rough and, like he would rescan stuff and and just the same way that that Bob or somebody you know can take something and just clean it up to look like it wasn't done at Kinko's you know but I mean this kind of has a Kinko's look because of the tape and everything the back of it the little design that the little blue and white flower thing is on the back cover and this behind the CD thing is a scan of I had these notebooks that I bought in Chinatown in New York a couple of years before that that I would use to write in. That was just like the, the inside of the book, and it just always looked cool. And then the inside with like the the little sun with like the psychedelic, you know, painting is a picture that Philip that was at his parents' house that was like a picture that they had on the wall in the 70s that we found in the basement and moved up to our house, and we just always liked it. Tooth & Nail Records releases North to the Future in September of 1996. And though the album would be well-received and the experience of making it had been a positive one, tensions within the band would begin to surface in the aftermath of its release. 
I remember like it getting good reviews and it seemed like that it was doing good, but I think that kind of inner turmoil in, in the band, I think we kind of broke up before we could um, see any fruits of it. We did the album and then we immediately like went on a tour from Chicago. We set out to go across the country and into Canada. We didn't even know like all the places we were going to go because it was like <laughs> this like half booked like mishmash of dates. We had started working on new songs, but things got a little tense and awkward in the band between just like the direction that we wanted to go. We were in Athens and Ryan and Russell were living in Austell and Mableton and like they wanted to just tour, tour, tour. And, you know, we didn't want to just tour just for the sake of it. Ryan and I um, wanted to stay on tour and we wanted to be a band that just toured for like six or eight months on the road, come home, make a record and go right back out. And Zach and Philip wanted to stay in Athens and like concentrate on songwriting. Ryan and I at the time were also like, okay to just to accept whatever tooth and nail would give us and tour with whoever, wherever, even if it was like quote unquote Christian scene, like we just wanted to be on the road. And I know for me, like being on tour was kind of an escape from my home life and from myself, an emotional reprieve. You know, I wanted that life just to be on the road or I could just kind of check out of life. I felt like we might have a chance to like, do this as a full-time career. So we were constantly arguing about that. We just came to a stalemate. I think we just got frustrated with each other. It was just kind of grinding to a halt, and there wasn't like that enthusiasm for it. Just a, you know, a year earlier, everything was like really exciting. It's kind of weird to look back on it that we actually broke up. I mean, I think if we had just taken a little breather or something, you know, there was a good chemistry there, and especially between me and Russell. And I was always wanting him to move to Athens. You know, I was like, there's a place for you here. And I think he just, I don't know, uh, didn't want to come, didn't know it at the time. Russell was getting into some hard drugs and we didn't know. I mean, we ended up finding out about it, but like didn't know the extent of it. I did want to move to Athens. And I remember like going up there and trying to get a job and putting in tons of applications. I even almost worked at a corn dog stand at the mall, but like, I, it's like nobody would hire me. I just like gave up on it too easily. I think, you know, yeah, that was my bad because I think I should have put more effort into it. I could have like gone up there with no money and, you know, I wouldn't have gone hungry. I think I was just too scared, you know? And so just being young and I just wish that I had more self-confidence at the time. 
but I also had like a burgeoning drug problem and that that clouded my judgment, <laughs> you know. Following the band's breakup, Gresham, along with drummer Philip Brown, would spend much of the 2000s releasing a number of excellent records under the name Summer Hymns, while Holbrook, after embracing sobriety in 2012, would focus his creative energy on writing, publishing a memoir in 2019 about his struggles with substance abuse, titled Heroin is the Answer, a memoir of what I can remember. Though their paths would diverge following the band's end, Gresham and Holbrook still feel a connection to the shared experience of being in Joe Christmas, and it is because of this, much like the line from the track East Coast Angle, in which Gresham sings, I can't afford to be mad at you, because you're half of me, that the two former bandmates are able to reflect on their time together and the record they made over 25 years ago with a sense of pride. Overall, I'm proud of what we did. It doesn't sound as um, dated as it could be. Is it 25 years now? I think it holds up. It's hard to separate myself to listen to it as an observer and not as a creator, but when I hear it, I'm proud of it. I mean, it captures what we sounded like, you know. I think listening back to it, there's like a, a sadness below the surface of it that I didn't realize was there back then. Music made us happy, and I think even when it's sad, or when the subject matter is sad, it's like we were happy because we love playing music. You know, I didn't finish college and, and stuff because I was, you know, trying to do music. So it's, you know, it's a little bittersweet, but ultimately it's happy because um, it reminds me of the good times that we had. You know, when we made it, I was just really excited about it. I loved the way it sounds, and it had the gray, like, kind of dingy sound that I was hoping for. And it's kind of, to me, I wanted it to be like a little bit of a downer, and I guess it is. And um, I'm really happy with it from a creative standpoint. Um it's completely different from upstairs overlooking and like just the tone and the feel of it and everything. Sometimes I've caught myself saying that I like upstairs overlooking better. You know, it's like I prefer the production on it and, you know, it has like some really thick guitar on it and that I really like. And, but I don't know, like I think North of the future is more thoughtful and I really enjoy that. I feel like at this point, I can't really pick one over the other, but I feel like North of the Future is like a best we could do at the time. I think we we didn't like slack off on it. You know, we tried really hard. And so I'm, I'm very grateful that we had the opportunity to make it and that Tooth and Nail, like, let us go up to Chicago and they paid for it. And it's really a dream come true. So, you know, I'm very thankful that it's out there in the world and I'm proud of it just as a record.
Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Zachary Gresham and Russell Holbrook for speaking with me about this very special record. Another special thanks goes out to my man Greg Harmelink for helping set this all up, as well as Jeff Foster at Spin180.com for providing the MP3 of the track Yoke of Lack from the Mootown Records compilation in the land of milk and cookies. You can stream North to the Future and more from Joe Christmas on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at lovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.